Welcome to the Association of Applied and Therapeutic Humor podcast, LaughBox. We have multiple hosts and multiple guests and multiple ways to think out of the box using humor. LaughBox is a production of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Visit us online at www.aath.org. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Music by Gary Rubio. For more information, www.garyrubiomusic.com. Join us for episode 119 with Jim Bob Williams, KDB, and special guest, Paul Ossinkoff. Yay! Welcome to LaughBox, the official podcast of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. I'm Jim Bob Williams. And I'm Katie B. And today our guest is past president of the AATH, an amazing, accomplished, certified professional speaker, and just a great human being overall. Please welcome Paul Ozenkopf. Thank you. Oh, all right. Thank you so much. Wow. Wonderful to meet your acquaintance on this here podcast, Jim, Bob, and Katie. Well, what an honor, past president, (laughs) Mr. Super Global. I said no autographs. Okay. I said no autographs. Just (laughs) I I got my bouncers keeping people at bay here. Okay. We're good. (laughs) I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Actually, we're not. I first (laughs) met Paul at the 2018 AATH conference in San Diego. Paul was a platform speaker for for comedy for caregivers, put on a show, mixed media, shall we say, because it was a combination of stand-up and PowerPoint, and I just sat there in awe. The the timing was so perfect. In Uh, awe, zing cup. Oh, so good. That's all day. That's all day. Let's go. (laughs) And okay. And another moment I'll always remember is when during the pandemic, there was a, a conference, or I should say an episode of Laugh Box when Chip Lutz was host, and it brought you and Karen uh, Buxman, you know, Heidi Hanna, and others to talk about humor in serious times. And that was a phenomenal episode. So let me, I don't think people want to hear from me anymore. So tell us, how did you get into this humor thing? <laughs> so I used to lead a secret double life. So I had a really serious job. I was like the chief disciplinary officer for a university at Colorado State University. So I met with students who were in trouble. Usually it meant pretty severe, either mental health or co-occurring substance abuse issues. And a lot of times they had been in trouble with the law. And so my job was to help them get their lives back on track and get pointed in the right direction. So really serious job, but in the, in my other life. I'm doing stand-up comedy, won a couple contests, doing improv comedy. And I just always have loved humor and loved comedy. And then I started to just totally nerd out about it and research because I felt like even at work, my sense of humor helped me in different ways, either relate to students or maybe diffuse things or relate to my coworkers and colleagues and people I supervise. So I was just real curious about that. And then I, the more I started to research about all of the great things humor does for us, uh, I started to talk about it, do talks and people like those talks. And then I started to combine this inner educator with this inner comedian. And then the next thing I know, I'm I'm doing what I do now. But I remember like there was this one situation in particular, even at work where I was meeting with this one student who he and I had met once before. And it didn't go real well. It went okay, but I had a feeling he'd be back. He was very defensive, really angry. 
and our meeting didn't go that well. And now, of course, he was back. He came to the office this time with his mom and his attorney. And so I was really preparing for our meeting, a little bit nervous for it. And right before going out to the lobby to meet them and bring them back, I spilled like a 32 ounce soda right on my crotch. And I was like, ah, man. And I didn't have a change of pants. I didn't have time to dry it thoroughly. I didn't know if it should, I do like an awkward walk with my papers in front of my crotch. Yeah, I was like, what, what do I do? So I just walked out smiling with this soda down my lap and I called his name and I said, oh, I hope you guys' day is starting off better than mine. And he just quietly looks up with a little grin on his face and goes, I told you to see a doctor about that. <laughs> and like 10 people in the office started laughing. Everyone was laughing except his mom who like slapped his knee, like Jason or whatever his name was. And, but it was so funny. And I, I like looking back on that moment, I realized like I wasn't being funny. All I was doing was just having a little bit of levity about my situation. And even in a position of authority that I was in, I was just really inviting humor more than anything. And he took that invitation and used that levity almost as an olive branch for our last encounter. And the meeting went a lot better this time. So there are a lot of moments like that, that I realized that humor and levity can go a long way. Oh, that is brilliant. That's brilliant. Oh, look, we had the same thing. Buy me a Coke. Brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. So when did you know that speaking was going to become more than, oh, just an, an idle hobby side gig type thing? When did you launch into the world uh, well, of professional speaking? I still have my doubts. No, I, my mom said that I didn't start speaking until after I was two years old, but I haven't stopped since. <laughs> I, I have always had a proclivity to, to speak ever since I started. And I will say even in third grade, my, my teacher, Mrs. Temple, I was talking when I wasn't supposed to in class again. And she looks, she interrupts the entire class and goes, Paul, you have diarrhea of the mouth. And the whole class, ooh, you know, sick bird, dude. And, but I like that made me, I don't know. I was like embarrassed in front of the whole class. And so she goes, you have diarrhea of the mouth. And I go, oh, sick. It's running down my chin. And the whole class laughed, you know? And, but then Miss Temple sent me to the principal's office. And so then I go to the principal's office and the principal and, and there was another adult there. They were like, Paul, what are you doing here? And I said, I said something I shouldn't have said. What did you say? Miss Temple said I had diarrhea of the mouth. So I said, oh, sick. It's running down my chin. And they, I saw them trying to keep a straight face, but also and be stern. But they were also smirking and left. They're like, you really shouldn't do that. And that's when I knew, like... This humor thing has power. I felt like a little Jedi or I was tiny. I was in third grade. So I was like that little miniature Yoda that's in the Mandalorian maybe, but I don't know. I've been talking ever since then to get to your question. Seriously, I would say in like 2015, I knew I wanted to try. I had, I had the side hustle where I was doing some speaking gigs. People were enjoying my talks. I was enjoying doing it, but I was also still working full time. And I had a, a good opportunity at that point. My wife and I talked about maybe this would be a good time to just try and see if I can transition to doing it full time and, and give it a year and a half and see. And it, I was able to just hustle enough work for a while there and do some other odd jobs and keep it going until eventually things really momentum kept going. And I'm starting to do some speaking and I'm not paid yet. So what would be the transition 
period from not paid to paid? Oh, man. <laughs> it can be, I, I think the transition can be different for everybody because there was a while where I was getting paid even small amounts or even, even as I started getting paid more and feeling, oh my gosh, I can't believe people are willing to pay me this much to do these talks. I would still do some things for free or very low amounts because it was like a really good opportunity or it was a good way for me to try something new with not much pressure. Or maybe I thought I might be able to get some real good um, audio visual stuff out of it or something like that. But I think one of the things that helped me the most, a couple things, one was to get in to places I already was. I was in education and I knew people in higher ed. So I started there. Like I started speaking to staff at different colleges that they knew me, they would bring me into their, to their team meetings and things like that. And that branched out. I started working with some nonprofits and stuff within the community and do, doing some stuff with K-12. And then I started doing a lot of free or like very little pay stuff for like chambers of commerce. Because chambers of commerce always have like lunch and learn, leadership lunch and things, and they're always looking for speakers. So I would do those things and let the work speak for itself. People had a good time. If I did a good job, then people would go, you know what? You'd be perfect for this thing. And one thing led to another. I think the big thing was capturing high quality video and pictures at the beginning, even from things that I was doing for free, because nobody really wants to hire a speaker these days that they can't see their work. Let me right. see you in action or see some testimonials from people who have been there. So that kind of stuff. That's great info. Perfect. Your website is amazing, by the way. Why, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I did some of it myself and had a lot of help from a, a group called Small Normus, which is a great name because this it's a husband and wife team. And he's, I don't know, 6'3", everything over 5'10 to me. I'm 5'4". I'm anything over 5'10 is just giant. But I think he's 6'3", and she's like shorter than me. And so their name of their company is Small Normous. I love it. And they specialize in small businesses. I'm like, that's ah, so brilliant. <laughs> and Paul, can I just ask quickly, where are you in your timeline? So how long have you been doing keynote speaking and when did your transition from the university to the speaking happen? It, I quit my full-time job in the fall of 2015. Yeah, gosh, I'm getting on almost nine years now. I was, like I said, I was doing it part-time before that, which is tough when you're making ends meet with a full-time job. But yeah, so I've been doing it full-time now for a while. And I want to reflect on the first time I saw you was at the Funny Business Boot Camp which oh. was my introduction to AATH. And that boot camp was the reason the Chin Group exists. The Creative Humorous Inspiring Noodling came out of that. Oh, really? Yep. And the oh, connection cool. to Jim Bob and all of this has dominoed from that event for me. Good. Anyway. I'm glad. Yeah, that boot camp was fun. I'm glad we did that. So you, your latest project has not hit the streets yet. But could you tell us a little bit about The Humor Habit? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, my my new book, and for those in, in the audio medium on the podcast, we're all on Zoom here, but they can see I've got this giant poster behind me of the cover of my book, The Humor Habit. Rewire your brain to stress less, laugh more, and achieve more. And really, the subtitle kind of says it all. It's a book about how to use humor as a strategic mindfulness 
strategy. For a lot of people, things like yoga, meditation, breath work are all great strategies and those things work. But for some people, those just aren't enough or aren't the right fit or require too many essential oils. It's, it, it just depends. And I think humor is something that people don't really look at as a way to uh, be mindful about their lives. And so this book really dives into humor as a way of life and a way of being. And it's, and it's all, there's a lot of very specific exercises and strategies within the book to help people who even who think they aren't funny, rewire their brains. So from like positive psychology techniques mixed with humor, all the way to mixing positive psychology with comedic writing and improv comedy techniques. Okay. So we've got a lot of overlapping Venn diagrams here. Positive that's psychology. Right, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Stand up and improv and speak there. Can you summarize positive psychology in 25 words or less? Yes. And I just say yes, because I'm an improviser. So I have no choice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, to me, positive psychology is studying the high-performing outliers. And it, it's the study of rather than why is so-and-so messed up or why is everyone depressed or whatever, it's, wow, how are these high-performers doing so well? What habits yeah. do they have, things that are going well, that are uh, helping to facilitate that? Ooh, can you give us examples? Oh, sure. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples, say, from the book. So, for example, one of the one of the habits that I highlight in the book is having a humor jar, right? So get a jar with slips of paper next to it. Could, because for a lot of people who aren't total humor nerds like us, humor is just something that randomly happens in life. And it's, oh, I remember we all were cracking up yesterday at work or at home but I don't really remember what it was about. This is a way to capture those moments. And so when something funny happens, you could do this at work or at home. When someone says something funny randomly happens, you write it down on the slip of paper and put it in the jar. And what that does is it helps you savor it in the moment. Oh, this was such a funny moment. I want to write this down. So it helps you savor it then. But then depending on how many people you have doing it, you can come back to that jar, say at the end of every month or quarter or at the end of the year and relive all those funny moments. And, and this follows positive psychology research that says people who are able to savor the happy, positive moments in the moment are actually higher performing, more positive, happier, but also a, a form of savoring is reminiscing about past positive moments. So you're double dipping on that funny moment not to mention you're remembering all these funny things th that are happening in your life. So that's, that's, that's one tip there. That's great. Yeah. Okay. I have a full confession to make here because I absolutely agree with everything you're saying, but I came crown it with a different way. When I was a supervisor, there are plenty of supervisors out there that would go around trying to catch people do stuff and wrong. Yeah. So they could jump on them and say, man, you filled this form out right. You didn't do that task. You were late for this. You were sloppy for that. And I found that, always found that very demotivating. So I, when I became a manager, I said, you know what? I'm going to try to catch people doing something right. There you and, go. And when they do something right, I'll reward them for it. If I And of course, sometimes that reward is just a little matter of prick. Hey, good job. And I soon found out that people had really responded to that. They much more appreciated getting small, consistent moments of recognition. And I always found performance appraisals were easy because I asked people to fill it out for me first. Invariably, 
the performance, their drafts were negative. They talked about how, gee, they would have had this done earlier, except for this, or they didn't think they made this was the high quality enough. And so performance review time, I would say, yeah, you might've been late with that paper, but it got published here. So now, of course, there are moments when somebody really messed up, but it was just a, amazing for me to realize uh, the, the power of positivity and the power of doing it there, which leads us to the question of, is there such a thing as toxic positivity? Uh, I, I, that term toxic positivity is like super popular these days. And I suppose if you're thinking of it in terms of trying to just shine a positive light on everything without acknowledging yeah. the, the difficult times in life, like pain and suffering. Um, so for example, it, in my book, one of the chapters is called take your pain and play with it. Um, from a Charlie Chaplin quote, who he said, mm -hmm. in order to truly laugh, you need to be able to take your pain and play with it. Um, and so it's literally exercises in how do we take the difficult times, stressors, even traumatic um, parts of our lives and mine those for nuggets of humor. And so to me, that is rational optimism. That is rational positivity. It is mm -hmm. Okay, life is messy and hard and traumatic and awful, but it's also absurd and funny and fun and beautiful. It's not either or. So yeah, I suppose toxic positivity could be just trying to paint everything with a beautiful brush and everything's fine and completely ignore the negative rather than facing the negative and going, all right, this is tough, but... We, we can make it better. With, at AATH, we did some work with uh, a drug company and we were working with people living with psoriasis. And we were trying to help them find ways of dealing with their psoriasis with humor. And so we were teaching them some of the strategies from this book, for example, comedy writing strategy of the comic triple, right? Stating three things, a list of three things, two being serious or obvious, and the third one being surprising, different, or funny. And one of the pain points of people who that, that people came up with that living with psoriasis or really any chronic condition is having to explain it to other people all the yeah. times. So, uh, it just gets annoying having to go over this. One of the ones that they came up with was I treat my psoriasis with ointment, light therapy, and a vacuum or like comparison, using comparison about mm -hmm. it having psoriasis. It, it kind of, it feels like wearing a fiberglass scarf. Right. Just being able to use these tools of comedy to help people deal with their chronic issues. So when you talk about toxic positivity, really what we're doing is rewiring our brains or training our brains to not always just focus on the negative because we yeah. have a negativity bias anyway. Yeah. And that negativity bias when we were cave people was huge. It helped us survive. That negativity bias helps us pick up on an oncoming storm or an attacking pterodactyl. But now it helps us survive, but it doesn't help us thrive rather than having this thing that we're looking at. Oh my gosh, there's this oncoming storm or this other thing. We're using our negativity bias to point out other people's mistakes. The fact that humans and pterodactyls didn't actually live together in the Mesozoic era. I'm sure somebody was listening to this going, that technically, <laughs> you didn't even live together. That's our negativity bias right there. You just... <laughs> Yeah. I was just talking about that yesterday with somebody about the negativity bias and oh, how I thought you meant pterodactyls. 
Oh, and and that they don't they fly right, but then they look a little bit like T Rexes, but the the wings just they're too big. Anyway, but, <laughs> but you were talking about negativity bias. Yeah, because yeah, I'm in a I'm in a I work with the Eastside Institute in social therapy, and I work with AATH and applied improv, and over here there's a request to feel your pain. And when I bring up joy and Joy First Foundation and what I'm trying to do with reframing and bringing more positivity, they say, oh, but what if you sit in that pain? And I say, that's nice for a minute. Feel your pain. But there's nothing wrong with optimism. And right. the negativity bias helps us to stay in optimism. Because when you go down that negativity rabbit hole, for some people, they never get out. And so I think even just external things, habits, you, your book, like these things that we're hearing help us to be able to get out of that rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's not, this is well studied too. Humorous reappraisal actually enhances positive emotions and decreases negative emotions more so than regular positive reappraisal does. So looking mm -hmm. back at past stressors or traumatic situations and trying to reappraise them with humor actually enhances our well-being better than almost any type of cognitive reappraisal. And, and it doesn't mean that all of a sudden that pain goes away. It just actually builds our resilience to be able to get through it. And then the next time something comes knowing that, you know what, I got through this last disaster and I, I can do it again. And you know what, I even found some humor in that situation. I tell you, I've been through two devastating wildfires, yeah. one in which my home was burned and we lost almost everything we own. Another where my home survived, but the community I lived in, thousands of homes burned and thousands of people were in evacuation shelters. And even through those tragedies where you're not going to erase the hurt and the pain with some humor, it's not just going to go away. But our brains can't simultaneously process psychological distress and humor at the same time. So any break we give ourselves to, to laugh a little or find something amusing is just a brief reprieve from our pain or our, our, our discomfort. And that's okay. I remember we wrote an article in the paper about ways that people leaned on humor during the aftermath of that fire in California. And I, I gave a talk about this with a bunch of healthcare providers. And after the talk... This woman came up to me and said, thank you so much for doing this. And I wanted to share a story with you. She said, we lost our home and a friend of mine was helping me. We had these sifters and we were sifting through the ashes, just looking for anything we could find, maybe some jewelry or something to come away with. And my friend found something. She said, come here, I found something. And I ran over there and I looked at what area of the house we would have been in, where we would have been. And I looked at this bent wire and I started laughing, just busting out uncontrollably laughing. And I said, well, why? And she's like, wouldn't you know the one damn thing we found? It was the underwire to one of my bras. Uh, <laughs> I was like, good Lord, what are those things made of? And I have a whole new respect for you ladies. Uh, but that was a moment that she was able to let herself have a few laughs. And it was a brief reprieve from a pain that she was going through where she's literally on her hands and knees looking for any remains of what her life was before that. Paul, is this your first book? Yeah, yeah. My first 
book that I've written. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. It's, I'm not one who can sit at a computer for long stretches of time. And it's, this was a more difficult task than I thought it was going to be. So I'm very proud to have gotten it done. And how many words did chat GPT write? Oh, that's a great question, actually, because oh. I know you were you were in jest saying that, but in one of the chapters, so there's a section about bringing humor to work, and it's about bringing humor to work with laughter. I use laughter as an acronym, and I first thought, oh, laughter would be a great acronym, but then I looked at how the word laughter is spelled, and I was like, uh, that's, a, that's a, why is there a huge ugh in the middle of the word laughter? Like, <laughs> laughter. So I decided to take that U-G-H and F that. So L-A-F-T-E-O. And, uh, but that's my acronym. And in, in one of the chapters, it, the A stands for ask for help and that it doesn't have to all be on you to bring humor to work. And there's a lot of, it, it outlines a lot of different ways to ask for help. One of the ways is AI, uh, chat GPT um, type of technology, because look, as a comedian, I'm never going to use that device because it's like one of the biggest sins in comedy to, to have other, steal other people's material or have chat GPT or whatever, write it for you. But as somebody at work who you want to add a little humor to your meeting agenda or a presentation, get some ideas from it. There's a lot of problems we all have. Look, if you have a lot of problems that you can't solve on your own, that just makes you human or a math book. Uh, now that, <laughs> joke, just... <laughs> that joke was from chat GPT for oh, that nice. section of the book. That was the, what? so that to, to answer your question, that was the only part of the whole book written by chat GPT. And Sarah Silverman had nothing to do with your book. Is that correct? Sarah Silverman? Oh, I, I wish. No, she had nothing to do with my book. Cause there's a, She's finding her work to show up on chat GPT and it's become a, oh, a thing. Yeah. So yeah, as, com yeah, as comedians trying to protect your work from chat GPT could be. Yeah. There's a lot of, cause you, you can prompt chat GPT to write a joke in the style of Seinfeld or Sarah Silverman or whatever. Yeah. So there's, I, that's going to be an interesting road. We go down here soon with comedians playwrights, all, you name it. So yeah. yeah, for sure. But your book is 100% written or 99.9. .9 Other than that one math book joke, which I, I reformatted yeah. a little because it was, it was formatted well, poorly. Chat GPT, you... they're not, they're st it's still not real great. Yeah. Cause I was going to say Paul is, but yeah, 99.99% written <laughs> by me. Yeah. A little, I had, I have two coworkers here at my house. They are dogs. They yeah. help a little bit, but they, I still have not got them to laugh at one thing I've written or said. So, oh man, but do they smile? They do. They smile. They snore and fart under my desk. It is just <laughs> perfect. It's so fun. Yeah. Was, <laughs> half the time I'm in here writing, it sounds like somebody's blowing an air hose through a meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about habits. How long does it take to develop the humor habit? I think it's going to be different for everyone. And I, the way I say it is, a lot of people think humor or being funny is a talent yeah. and, or I, I love the idea of this. I'm just not that talented with humor and humor is not a talent. Humor is a habit. And if you ask any comedian or humor writer, it really does take discipline to sit down and write every day. But the more you do it, the more your mind starts to see the, the humor in real time. It's so it's the priming effect. 
your brain will see what you set it up to see. It's just, like mm. you're excited to, you're going to go buy a new Jeep or something. And you start researching these Jeeps and now everywhere you go, all your Jeeps, right? It's the same with humor, except now everywhere you go, instead of Jeeps, jokes. So I think it, it depends on how many of these humor habits you do, how often you do them. If every day you are sitting down to say, write down the funny things that happen throughout your day, and you're doing that daily, you're going to develop that habit of seeing humor in, in real time more and more often. And, and I'll tell you, even for somebody like me, who I have been, I have loved humor and comedy my whole life. I have performed stand-up and improv, but for the longest time, I was so serious where I wouldn't even laugh that much. Like, I don't know if you ever do that where you're like watching a funny comedian or a, a show and you genuinely think it's funny and you just sit there and go, that's hilarious, but you're not laughing. I'm like, why am I not laughing? What's wrong with me? I'm broken. For me, I actually did have to do many of these habits to just get my inner sense of silliness and not take life so cerebral and serious all the time. I was, you were asking about my early speaking career. I had this opportunity early on in my career to speak at this huge conference. There's 20,000 people. And I got there and I was like, I am going to take full advantage of this. And I'm going to network with everybody. So I'm handing out business cards right and left. Everybody that I spoke to is getting a business card. And I was in my breast pocket. Here you go. I'd love to connect with you. Here you go. Give me a call. I get done talking with this one executive. And as he starts to walk off, I go, wait. And I reach in my breast pocket and I go, give me a call sometime. And I hand him my hotel room key. And he was, he, he, he goes, oh, I, I, I was quickly like, oh, hold on. He goes, oh, that escalated quickly. And I, oh, wait, no, hold on. I'm like so embarrassed. <laughs> and like, clearly that's a funny moment. But in the moment, I was so caught up in my own chronic seriousness that like I could not even, my brain was not processing this as a comedy. My brain was processing this as, you have ruined your big moment, you idiot. <laughs> and so I, I think that these habits help us train our brain to see the humor in real time rather than a year later going, oh no, that was actually pretty funny. Yeah, I love that. And I just think they say three months, right? To create a new habit, to have it be ingrained. Yeah, uh, to, to, create a, to create a new habit, yeah, three months. But to me, you can, with your own schedule or discipline, you're doing this however many times as you want. If you want to say, now this is a habit, this is something I do, yeah, three months. But this week, you could every day do one of these humor habits and you're starting this habit now. So the three months is, yes, that's when it is becoming ingrained. It's a part of your lifestyle. It's part of your identity. But when people hear three months, I think that can be a little bit deterring. Oh man, three months. I don't got three months. That's why I'm like, start today. You can do this stuff. It's easy in five minutes every day. And doing it, if you want to change something or you want to get to the next level, you start yeah. now, you create your own discipline, and in the end, you have a positive habit. And Absolutely. you even there have, you go. after a week, if you're disciplined, you have already that positive habit. So it's not that you have to wait three months. Right. And the other thing is there are some positive things that can come of all of this, even just after a short period of time. For example, one of the habits in the book, the three funny things intervention, where for seven days, 
you just write down three things that you found funny or amusing. And maybe they made you laugh out loud. Maybe they just made you think, oh, that's pretty funny. What our fellow AATH member and researcher Willie Roof at University of Zurich found is that people who did this just for one week increased their overall happiness and decreased depressive symptoms for up to six months. So while the science around developing a habit that this is now a part of your lifestyle, maybe you've only done it for a week, so it's technically not one of your habits yet. Just doing that for a week may have a huge impact on your mental well-being for up to six months. Right. And in the research I've done on suicide ideation, right, people that are struggling with depression and are looking toward taking care of business in that way, it's not self-deprecating jokes or other deprecating jokes. It's generic jokes and gratitude that can shift that perspective out of suicide ideation and save lives, which is oh, amazing. Oh, wow. And ties into what you're saying, seven days, one day, one day of just changing your perspective and offering a little bit of humor to yourself can change deep, deep depression. Wow. I haven't heard that research. That's fascinating. And it makes sense to me too, because there is something very empowering and like resilience building about just about being able to find something funny. One of our, one of our colleagues, Steve Soltadov, he's a therapist. And I remember him telling a story at one of the AATH keynotes about a client of his who was very resistant to change. She was really stuck in clinical depression and she really was resistant to therapy or wanting to change. And he would use some humor in his sessions with her, show her funny cartoons with jokes and things like that. And one time he showed her this cartoon with a joke and she laughed. And she said, I hate it when you do this. And he said, why? And she goes, because when I laugh, then I can't be depressed anymore. And that was a real big breakthrough for them because it was like, oh, why are you wanting to hang on to that? And that was one of the bigger issues for them to get into is what are you getting out of hanging on to this identity, this part of you? But there is something that's like undeniable resilience and empowerment to when you're able to laugh at something. Well, yes. And laughter yoga shows us that you can't have your cortisol super high and your endorphins at the same time. So you right. said this before, and the chemical reaction to it is by laughing, you automatically are reducing your cortisol and you're having that experience that woman just had. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like once that starts to happen, you notice a difference right away. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, my biggest question is that I'm working on now, I'm curious if you have an opinion about this, is <clears throat> humor and bullying. So we know the victims of bullying a lot of times become quite humorous because it's a coping strategy. But I'm wondering and trying to do research, and I hope this doesn't digress too much, and by the way, I do edit <laughs> <laughs> if humor can help the bully too if humor can help the bully mm -hmm. or the person well, being bullied the person being bullied we know a lot of yeah. times they use humor to and i've talked to people about this they use humor to deflect and to be right. resilient and deal with what's happening but i'm curious about if we could use humor to 
completely diffuse the bullying in general by the bully too. Oh man, I would be shocked if there's not a way to do that. Yeah, you asked for my opinion. I don't have any research on it, but knowing what I know about using humor to cope, usually people are mistreating other people for some reason, right? There are other things going on in their lives. I used to do a lot of outreach with schools about bullying and peer-to-peer mistreatment and stuff. And yeah, if you were able to get kids who are mistreating other kids to be able to either write jokes about their pain, look at the humor in, say, school clicks and that kind of stuff, I'm sure there is a way to diffuse some of that without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. And your background in education actually helps that a lot. That. Yeah, having, I mean, you're able to have an opinion that a lot of people can't even really get close to because you've actually seen some of this in your well, some of the, previous some job. Some of the work I did when I was transitioning from full-time to speaking, I was doing some work with a nonprofit called Community Matters, and we would go into schools and we would ask the schools to select leaders from different peer groups and cliques. So you'd have some of the leaders from like drama and football team and wood shop or whatever from all these different areas. And we'd bring them together for an intensive two-day workshop on how to intervene when you see mistreatment at school. And it would start out really weird because they would all look at each other like, why am I in this workshop with these people? Sometimes there would be people who had interactions like bullying interactions with each other in there. And I will tell you right now in those workshops, There was a lot of fun and humor had as we're teaching these kids communication skills of, okay, when you see this at your school, how do you intervene? And a a lot of it we're using from the basics of nonviolent communication and that kind of stuff. But we taught that course with a lot of fun and humor, role plays, things like that, where they, kids are smart. They see the humor in this and they see the absurdity in the hell are we doing (laughs) to each other? Yeah. 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 And the phrase hurt people, hurt people, mm-hmm. I think is really important to remember in these cases because yeah. it's, there's something else going on nine, nine times out of 10. Oh, so- I, absolutely. I, I took my, uh, granted, I was always a little too small to be bullying anyone for the most part. I was, I just used my gift of gab to get myself out of most situations. But for, for a lot of us, I think that I was able to do that with some pain from my childhood that I would think a lot of hurt people also have as young people. Like my parents divorced when I was three. So I never really got to live with my real dad. And then my stepdad came in and he was pretty abusive physically. And so there was a lot of that. And so I joke around and used to joke around even in high school that like, I probably wouldn't try to be so funny all the time if I had a more stable father figure. And to this day, it's, yeah, this is, it's part of the reason I probably crave the attention that I do. It's (laughs) it's just, it's part of our DNA. And I'm going to circle back to all of your goodness. I'm going to go back to Charlie Chaplin and playing with your pain. And my obsession lately has been Lucille Ball. And I just watched a documentary, Lucy and Desi, and it was amazing to, I did not know that Lucy trained with Buster Keaton. Oh, Buster Keaton. Oh, wow. Yes. That's cool. 
So she was the student of the craft and studied comics like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. But I do believe, I think she actually learned clowning from Buster Keaton. Wow. That's amazing. I, I, yeah. I love Lucille Ball. One of my favorite Lucille Ball quotes that she says, I'm not funny. What I am is brave. And first of all, I disagree. I think she's hilarious, but I get her point that a lot of this is the bravery, I think, particularly in today's world, is we suffer from chronic seriousness. And it it does take bravery to, let's say, even in a work environment, just show people a little bit of that person that we are, say, around our siblings or our best friends, and just shave a little of that seriousness away and show people who we really are. And it takes a little bit of courage to do that, but it pays dividends when looking back, at our lives, we can say, I lived a life according to really who I was and who I felt like I was. And I didn't have to cover that up for people. Jim Bob has texted a question. Okay. If humor prevents suicide ideation, does that mean there's no such thing as a killer joke? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's pretty good, Jim Bob. Gosh, that's wow. I like that. That's man, (laughs) that was off the cuff too. Dang, Jim Bob. (laughs) Yeah. Keep that one. Keep that one in the joke. See, that's the type of thing that if you're giving a talk and you're talking about these serious things, man, you can use that. That's great. Yes. Okay. So Jim Bob's usual question is how can humor help on Thursday? Any regular given day in your days of the lifetime, any regular ordinary day, how does humor help? To me, what it does, I'll give you two answers. One is specifically how I'll give you another tool, which is a mantra. A lot of people have, there's a lot of research about mantras. Like I am calm. For me, I am a goofy person. I'm a cynical person. I could never take myself seriously doing those mantras, those like real serious things. So I never really got into it, but they work. So if you can do it, great. But Here's how you could on a a random Thursday, if you're having a bad day, and maybe you're not a mantra person, make a mirthful mantra, a mantra that you make funny in some way. So for me, my, my mirthful mantra came from a Bud Light commercial where all the peasants would bring the king all these fancy mead wines or whatever, and he would send them to the pit of misery until they brought him Bud Light. And the whole town would go, Dilly, to the pit of misery. And and. For some reason, my wife and I started saying that like when things were going bad. So there's nothing like cleaning up dog diarrhea off the carpet like Dilly. And it helps reframe that like, God, this is so annoying. I've got a Zoom call coming up. I'm cleaning up diarrhea real quick, you know, trying to get this like what is going on. So I'm Dilly to the pit of misery. Um, But it it helps take the freak out from a nine to a seven a little bit. So there are ways to do that or take a serious mantra and say it in your head as a funny character. So Elmo going, I have a choice and I choose peace. Whatever it is that, that kind of helps you laugh. It could be lyrics to a song, whatever. So that's one way. And, and then the other thing to me is humor is a mindset. And I really got caught up in the drama and negativity right out of grad school in a work environment I was in and took everything so serious. And I remember at one point feeling like that is not me. That's not who I am. And how do I change that? Because I remember thinking to myself, I don't want, I don't want to live my life as an actor in a drama, 
just to reach the end to find out I was the director and it could have been a comedy. And there are ways to make sure to, that you are the director and that you can change the scene at any time to be more comedic. And that's, I think, what humor does for us is it can reframe the scenes in our life. I love that so much. I love that so much. There's a lot in there. I would do three clown shows a day, which meant that would be a 12 hour day, It'd be six hours of clowning. Yeah. And wow. in between gigs, I'd be tired or I'd have a new act that I was trying out or something. And I would have the, I can do this. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And I always could because I yeah. could at least improv through the mistakes if I had to. Right. But it, it would keep me going. And now I give out kazoos and I tell people, if you're having a bad day, break out the kazoo. You can't not laugh at a kazoo yeah. sound. And you <laughs> and can't even... argue with kazoos because you're going to crack up. For and example. even if you want to hum about how pissed off you are right now into your kazoo, great. It'll still sound funny. <laughs> That's funny you bring that up because in the last year, when I've had some difficult moments, I found myself singing random improv songs. I just make stuff up, yeah. start singing, and it completely takes away the stress. And now I'm focused on, oh, what am I going to say about this as I'm singing, making it up as I go? And, yeah, uh, for, for me, the Lego song, Everything is Awesome, is a really good one when stuff hits the fan because that's a good one you could make up lyrics to, like, everything is awesome. I just lost this speaking gig. I thought I had it nailed, but now they canceled on me. Whatever. And it's, okay, cool. Now I got to just refocus to something else. Wonderful. Yeah. Wow, what a great dance break we just had there with that song. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Hey, Paul, this has been amazing. I'm sorry we lost Jim Bob, but the podcast must go on. And I'm going to ask you, where can we find you? Where's your next speaking gig? What would you like to tell people out in the world about what's coming up for you? Lucky for me, I'm easy to find. I'm the only Paul Ozenkup in the world. Just Google my name and stuff will come up. That's great. But I would love for you to pre-order my new book, the Humor Habit, you can find that wherever you buy books. So if you want Amazon or you want your local bookstore, it should be there online. It comes out in April. It, it releases on April 20th, which is National Stress Awareness Month and National Humor Month. Uh, you'll get that little surprise book in April. So check that out. And yeah, my next speaking gig, I think I'm going to be this beginning of February here, headed to Edmonton, Alberta, speaking to huge group of teachers. So I'm excited about that. And yeah, also I'm on social media at Paul Ozenkup. So just connect with me there. I'd love to answer questions or just chat with people. Yeah. Your dogs show up a lot. Yeah. I can't not post about my dogs. They're just so freaking cute. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thanks for meeting with us. Thanks for being available in the middle of all these storms that so many of us are in. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you, Katie. And thank you, Jim Bob. Where are you? Thank you, Jim Bob. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, on behalf of Laughbox, we are going to say thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure oh, and an oh, honor. Can I say one more thing? Yes, you can. You know where you can also find me is at the AATH conference in April in Denver. Y'all better be there if you haven't signed up to go yet. Come on. What are you going what are you waiting for? It's going to be awesome. Yeah, let's meet there. 
yes, I'll be there. I'll see you. And everybody out there in the internet, interweb, out in the universe world, come to the AATH conference. You won't regret it. It's amazing. It's a lot of fun. And you can meet people with Paul. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much, Paul. Bye. Bye. Paul, you've always been one of my heroes in AATH, and someday your picture is going to be on the Mount Rushmore of humor. So, again... A big thanks to Paul Ozenkamp for sharing his book, The Humor Habit, with us. Thank you for joining us for episode 119 with Jim Bob Williams, Katie B., and Paul Ozenkamp. Yay! Thank you very much. Laugh Box is a production of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Visit us online at www.aath.org. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Music by Gary Rubio. For more information, www.garyrubiomusic.com. This has been LaughBox, brought to you by the Association of Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, and we'll see you next time.